I'm Tim Gombis, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I finished talking about reading New Testament letters. So I'm standing here in my study on an absolutely gorgeous day here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The sun is shining, and uh, it's in the evening. I've, I had a lot to do today, and finally getting to record this podcast on Monday, the final day of July 2023. Uh, it's a beautiful day, and in the evening light, I might walk down to Donkey and get a couple of street tacos, which I am prone to do. And always enjoy. Uh, yesterday, the Cubs had an eight-game winning streak snapped. I've not talked a lot about the Cubbies um, in the last couple of months because this this has felt like a lost season for the most part. Um, but somehow they've turned it on and turned it on at the right time against their rivals, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. Um there was some discussion that the Cubs were going to be uh, dumping players and getting rid of contracts to maybe retool for the future, which teams typically do before the trade deadline. Um, and now all of a sudden, they're thinking very differently about their season. They were three games out, first place in uh, the Central Division. Um, I'm not sure. This feels good. I think it's really cool. It's wonderful. It also feels like mm, this, this doesn't seem like it's uh, going to last necessarily. Uh, Cody Bellinger's just been absolutely on a tear, been the best hitter in baseball over the last um, month or so. So anyway, Cubs baseball is fun these days. Uh, the Cubs have a history, though, of sort of offering a lot of promise and not coming through. So we'll see. Uh, also, I just want to say the other day, um, the other day, I went, I went down to uh, Basalt. For those in West Michigan or in uh, Grand Rapids, Basalt is a, uh, a Tex-Mex restaurant open for breakfast and lunch uh, on Wealthy and Ethel, I think. And um, I did not have the burrito. I, I, there was no way I could have put that thing down. It's, it's massive. Did not have a breakfast burrito, but I had three breakfast tacos. I, I wanted to try those. I just, I was sort of up for something different and oh my word, they were insane. Absolutely transcendent. I, I was, they were just gave me such delight is difficult to express. Uh, my buddy Steve's coming up in a couple of days and um, I'm sure we'll head down there. I might have uh, a few more of those puppies. So good. Uh, last, um, oh, today's Monday, last Thursday, uh, my friend Joe and I went to go see the Barbie film, which is, I, I am definitely going to see it at least two or three more times. Um, it is so good. Really fascinating. Uh, so cleverly done. Um, I mean, just brilliant. It was hilarious, sharp, smart, funny. Um, my goodness, uh, as we were walking out, uh, I got a text from Tim Stafford. Uh who wanted to, he's already, he had already seen it. And, um, I think he had already seen Oppenheimer anyway, he texted and, and wanted to, um, explore some of those themes on the Voxology podcast, which 
uh, Mike and Tim and I talked Saturday. I think that just came out today. That episode where we discussed uh, the Barbie film and loads else. It just seems like there are so many, um, there's so many implications or so many uh, conversations that are possible in light of that. Conversations that we should have been having. Um, well, many people have been having, but not at such a popular level. Loads to reflect on and to talk about uh, stemming from that film. And uh, so anyway, check out the episode that dropped today of Voxology, where we sort of drew out a bunch of things going on in that film. Uh, when Steve comes up here uh, this week, I'm, gonna, I'm waiting to see Oppenheimer until Thursday, uh, where we'll probably um, enjoy that film very likely after uh, some street tacos and a margarita. Uh, so lots going on. And um, something that I wanted to also um, relay. Um, when I first started doing this high quality, intermittently produced and randomly released podcast three years ago, um, my good friend Joe was telling me about how it is that her favorite podcasts uh, are ones where people talk about their lives, where they share personal information, um, ones on which people are self-revelatory. And interestingly, that's true for me too. The podcasts I listen to are very personal, involving uh, talk about so many things that will actually not ever touch my life. Um, my favorite podcast, Tony, the, the Tony Corn. I always have trouble saying that name. Why? The Tony Kornheiser Show. Uh, Tony talks all about life in Washington, D.C. It's, it's so local. And like he talks about the weather, um, the waxing and waning moons. It's, it's so funny. He talks about his friends, golf outings, various restaurants. He talks about his summer camp experiences from when he was a kid and the friends that he still has from those days. Uh, various routes that he takes when he travels to uh, Binghamton, his alma mater, and to the beach and on and on and on. I love it. It's just fun. It's just interesting to get windows into people's lives. Um, on Smartlist, my other favorite podcast, the hosts talk about their lives, their relationships, their friendships with each other. And again, it's loads of fun. Um, on Operator Syndrome, Steve and Patrick talk about their lives because the entire project that they're engaging involves how warfare has had devastating and far-reaching effects on special operators. So of course, being personal and self-revelatory is a massive part of that because it's all about veterans' stories. Anyway, I'm saying all that uh, to say that that's been sort of my mode on this high-quality podcast as well. I enjoy talking about my life, my friendships, uh, my favorite foods, travels, Films I've seen, like Barbie, very soon, like Oppenheimer. Books I've read and, and how they've been provocative to me in a variety of ways and, and all that stuff. Mainly because I started doing this podcast as an attempt during quarantine. You might remember that, which was like 50 years ago, it seems, and also like 10 minutes ago. Uh, during quarantine, during COVID season, COVID tide, I was wanting to connect with other people and to provoke conversations um, about exploring Christian existence in this beautiful but broken world. Um, having been cut off um, from each other 
this was an attempt to generate conversation. So when I've said in the past that I'm, I'm doing this podcast for me, um, it was an attempt to, um, while, while being uh, sort of socially anxious and strongly introverted, um, I learned sort of, I learned to think in conversation with others. I learned what I think in conversation with others. And all that, uh, these last three years, I, I, I just had no idea how fun and enriching this would all be. It's been such a blast. I've so enjoyed it. But I also had no idea um, that during these last three years, and especially the last two, my life would change so much. But as it has changed, um, I've talked about that. And I'm comfortable doing that. I'm good with it. I talked about how my job, my dream job for 10 years, which became not at all a dream job with the huge changes at the university of which the seminary was part. And I say was because that seminary is no longer in existence. It's been renamed. Anyway, I talked about, you know, when my job came to an end, um, how I'm sort of in a liminal space career-wise. I, I really just have no idea what comes next for me. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, early last summer, Sarah and I decided, so in the summer of, in May of 2022, we decided to bring our marriage to a conclusion. Uh, to divorce and to shift our relationship to being uh, partners in the project, to being cooperative colleagues, basically, in the project of co-parenting the three most amazing and wonderful um, people on the planet, our children. Uh, we did that last May. We spent the summer carefully planning how to part ways um, in 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 ways that would be uh, treating each other and ourselves with compassion and kindness and gentleness and generosity and fairness um, to treat each other basically in ways that we would be proud of one year down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road. Um, very carefully took care of our kids over three or four months, our families, our friends. Um, and we did that. And we're very happy that we were able to do that and to do that well. And, and quite honestly, really proud of how we did that. So last September, I moved out. And uh, so when I've made reference to sort of this just being the weirdest time of my life, um, that's I'm talking about that. Um, these, these, these changes are just, everything has just been so different. But I've spent the last year just having a blast. Um, you know, traveling, having fun, hanging out with friends, uh, seeing, uh, traveling to see my kids, a bunch of my sisters, most of my sisters, um, seeing my buddy Sean from high school, my college roommate Lance, and um, spending this time just grieving, loss, healing, and more or less discerning what is next for me and where I want to go, where I want the path to go from here. Well, I decided in March or whenever it was, yeah, sometime in the spring, I decided that I was, after my lease is up in this apartment in which the study uh, is located, um, decided that when the lease was up in August that I was going to move to Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. I'm not quite used to saying Louisville. Don't know that I ever will. I'm, I'm just a northerner. That's how it goes. But um, 
That'll put me closer to Steve, who lives about an hour from there and closer to a couple other friends as well. And um, Louisville's a cool town, and I'm looking forward to enjoying it. It's a, a place where I have very little history, except for the few times that Steve and I have hung out there. So it's going to be a fresh start for me in a bunch of ways, and that's what I'm looking for. So Steve's flying here Wednesday, uh, the day after this podcast episode drops. We're loading up a truck with the help of uh, Chris and Dave and Andrew and taking off for Louisville on Saturday where my friends Don and Jonathan are going to help us unload. And we do need help because we're old. Uh, but I'm really excited about this and just want to say that I've I've been absolutely spoiled rotten with love and support from uh, my kids, uh, my family, my close friends. My church has been fantastic. Uh, people have been so good. So please, you know, 17 listeners don't don't worry about me. Please know that I'm in a great spot. I'm really just celebrating, quite frankly, where, where I'm at in my life. And I'm I'm really hopeful about my future. It's like, yeah, there, there are uncertainties, but that's true for everybody. And I am really happy with my current mixture of super good things and some uncertain things. And of course, transition is not always easy. And uh, grief has been part of this whole story as well. Uh, you know, loss hurts. Um, but it is definitely the case that I'm loving the place in life where I've gotten myself to. Anyway, I mentioned that just to explain that the way uh, on this here podcast, that which I will continue to be doing, um, the way I talk about the mundane things in my life will change. I won't be talking about Grand Rapids anymore, the weather in West Michigan. I hopefully will be enjoying shorter winters. So I won't be talking about unexpected, crazy snowstorms like in May. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, and I know that the way that I've sort of narrated my life in the last year uh, has changed. Um, my pronouns are singular and not plural anymore. Like when I talk about my kids, I don't talk about our kids, uh, even though... Um, you know, that's a reality in, in some ways. Uh, but I've had 12 wonderful years here in Grand Rapids. I, I feel such overwhelming gratitude for so many of the good gifts that I've enjoyed in this place. Um, I've enjoyed the last six or seven weeks or so um, meeting with really great friends that have meant the world to me uh, in this place and have been, uh, have been just gifts to me. And I just want to honor all the friendships that I've enjoyed um, and I feel like I've, I've, I feel so satisfied in having done that. And I'm looking forward to where things go from here. Uh, one thing that I do know, one thing that is certain is that I, I'll, I plan to continue doing this podcast. It's been an absolute blast and it's been so life-giving for me in so many ways. Um, there are some interesting directions I want to take it down the road. Interesting to me anyway. So, um, you know, to the 17 of you, thank you. I just have a few more things to say about New Testament letters. Even though there's like a thousand things to say about New Testament letters, um, I love getting into texts themselves and you know, digging around and sort of like when we run into interpretive challenges and that kind of thing. Um, to talk about method or concrete dynamics that are going on 
in the interpretive process, I like to bring those up then, like when you're in the process of interpretation. So like as far as general comments about the letters, I just have a few things that I, that I want to say. And then um, street tacos for me. Um, but I was talking about how it is that one of the most important things to keep in mind in uh, grappling well with New Testament letters is to understand that they are occasional texts. They are addressing specific problems and not just written out there in general. They're not like works of abstracted theology. And so all of that has to be kept in mind when we read these texts, because there are, there are so many unknowns. They're not like the Gospels. The Gospels were produced uh, for a variety, like, like the widest possible variety of communities. There are assumptions that the gospel uh, writers do make about, about audiences, um, like that they could read Greek or, or understand Greek as they hear those texts read to them, um, that they would know a variety of other things about, you know, geographical points and all that kind of stuff. But their aims, there's a lot that they would trust to um, readers of gospel narratives, that is people who are reading gospel narratives to audiences. There's a lot that um, gospel writers would trust to readers of gospel texts to audiences to explain, because it's likely that as sort of the gospel of John was read in Rome, say, and, and um, the writer of the gospel of John would have wanted it to have been read widely. Um, there might be geographical points or places where, you know, somebody who had never been to Palestine just wouldn't understand. Anyway, the gospel writers um, wrote their uh, works for as, as wide of a, a variety of audiences as possible. That is not the case with New Testament letter writers. Um, it very well may be the case, say, like with James, which, which seems to be written to a variety of Jewish communities, Jewish Christian communities. That very well may be the case with First Peter, which seems to be um, also a circular letter meant to be carried around and read to a variety of audiences. That is the case, I believe, with Ephesians. Um, I don't think Ephesians was meant for the Ephesians. I think it was meant for um, a variety of churches around Asia Minor, including um, the church at Ephesus. Um, but there are... Um, Ephesians is the most impersonal letter that Paul wrote, and the church at Ephesus is one of the churches that he would have known the best. So it's like, and then also there's the, a, a textual problem with the term Ephesus in Ephesians 1, when Paul says to the church at Ephesus, um, it's, that's most, the best ancient texts don't have that in there. And so, um, uh, many interpreters believe, probably the majority, that that text was meant to be a circular letter written to a variety of audiences. So Ephesians would sort of be an exception to what I'm saying. Um, so some of those texts are not necessarily occasional. They give a broad depiction. They give a broad um, portrayal of Christian realities, and they give a, a broad range of uh, exhortations. In that sense, um, those letters are actually really helpful for people that have no nothing in common with first century uh, Christian audiences uh, culturally, um, those are actually really effective. I think really, really um, on the mark for people that are unrelated to first century Christian audiences. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, um, 
I think that Ephesians ought to be regarded as sort of the heart um, of if there's any letter that represents what Paul's theology is, um, I think it's Ephesians. I think that's I think it's obviously Ephesians because um, whereas Christian tradition has has pointed Protestant Christian tradition has pointed to Romans being sort of Paul's gospel. Um, Romans is a highly occasional text. And there are that's a real challenge to interpret because there's so little information that we have about Roman Christian uh, about the character of, of um, the house the network of house churches in Rome. There's a lot we don't know, so that makes interpreting that letter uh, a real challenge. Even though we can sort of fool ourselves into thinking that that's one of the letters that we know the best, um, yeah, it's such a situational letter that it's difficult to sort of generalize. Um, whereas Ephesians is quite different, but, but these texts, New Testament letters are, um, largely occasional and that provides some challenges that I talked about in the previous episode. Um, and I just, I just want to draw out, um, the rest of that point and then make another point about authorship and, uh, we'll be done with New Testament letters for a bit. Uh, I think that considering the occasional uh the occasional character of paul's letters um, provides a good solution to what has been long been called the problem of paul and the law <clears throat> uh, for for many generations in protestant biblical interpretation uh there, there's been this problem of paul and the law um you know paul has a lot of positive positive things to say about scripture and about the law uh but in romans and galatians he has some negative things to say about the law which is a challenge like what is the deal so paul talks about um how justification nobody can be justified by works of the law and that justification is now apart from law and in galatians 3 11 and 12 he says that the law is not of faith like scripture is not of faith is basically what Paul is saying there. Like, how can that be? Now, on a traditional scenario, but this is what I was taught in seminary back in the 90s, uh, Paul's negative statements about the law have to do with the fact that he's opposing, not the Bible or, or the Old Testament, what he's opposing is Jewish legalism, like the legalism that is inherent within a Jewish view of things. Research over the last uh, 30, 40 years or so in the last generation of Pauline scholarship, the kind of research that is represented in the new edition of the Dictionary of Paul and his letters. Um, but research into Judaism ever since uh, the late 70s when E.P. Sanders did his work basically demonstrates that it's not legalistic. Um, the common understanding had been uh, of, of Palestinian Judaism was that like good works were necessary and it was it was necessary to obey the law in order to get saved. Um, better readings of Jewish texts have demonstrated that um, the way that it's not it's not appropriate to talk about Jewish theology um, in in the sense that like theology as an as a study of sort of abstracted notions is is um is a very Western way of thinking and Jew, Judaism is is um is a holistic way of life. But in in a in a more organically Jewish way of thinking, um, law observance is not done in order to 
get saved. The way that things work in a, on a Jewish scenario is that everything starts with God's grace. Everything starts with election. God chooses Israel, liberates Israel from Egypt, and then gives Torah. So it's a gift. So um, that traditional scenario um, was sort of has been kind of upended and and strongly challenged by um, by coming to a better understanding of Judaism and how Judaism works. Another development in uh, interpreting Romans and Galatians is to grapple with the reality that Paul is addressing not you know, the problem of Judaism or the problem of the Old Testament in his theological works, Romans and Galatians, these are highly situational pastoral letters where Paul is trying to solve um, a problem of community breakdown over the issue of whether or not non-Jewish Christians have to be related to Torah in the same way that Jewish Christians are. And it's that you know, occasional problem. It's that concrete problem that Paul is addressing in these letters. So when he makes these apparently negative statements about the law, like the law is not of faith in Galatians 3, 11 and 12, statements like that can be interpreted in light of the concrete situation, in light of the crises that are happening in Galatians, in Galatia, to the churches in Galatia and the churches in Rome. So on my view, when Paul makes a statement like in Galatians 3, 11 and 12, the law is not of faith. He's not saying, listen, uh, class, theology class, let's, let's talk about scripture. And point one in our theology of scripture is that, is that scripture has nothing to do with faith. Because that's not anything that Paul would say in the abstract. He's addressing a concrete problem, the problem of um, a group of ag agitators that arrived from the Ju uh, Jerusalem church and are trying to convince non-Jewish Christians that they need to be related to Torah in the same way that um, that these people from the Jerusalem church are. And so Paul is, he's talking about um, this, this, uh, this message or this um, pressure that's being brought to bear. So what he's saying is, for you Galatians, this um, pressure, this, um, this persuasion to adopt Torah for you is not the faith move. It's not saying something about the Old Testament in general. He's making a statement about the message that is being received by Paul's, by the churches in Galatia that Paul has planted. And, um, same is true about some of the negative statements made in Romans or apparently negative statements made about the law in Romans. He's talking about the, um, the crisis that is affecting the Roman Christian churches. Um, and the pressure that's being, uh, applied by one group of Gentile Christians who want to be, who basically want to be Jewish because they think that that's sort of, um, that's a way that they can escape any kind of, um, being stained with the history of Gentile idolatry. If they just take on a Jewish identity, they um, that's sort of a more faithful way of being Christian than just being not Jewish. And they're passing judgment on the Gentile Christians in Rome that won't convert to Judaism. So because of that, Paul is talking about how uh, Torah is affecting them.
So any negative statements about the law in uh, in Romans are about the situation and not about Torah in general. If Romans was a work of theology that was just written in the abstract, which is how many people have interpreted it for hundreds of years in the Protestant tradition anyway, um, we would have a greater problem. But just to say the occasional character of Paul's letters um, helps solve problems in Pauline theology, because we have to understand just what is going on in the situations that Paul addresses. Also, uh, one final point, one final way that I think it's helpful to understand the occasional character of New Testament letters is that it's often been, uh, interpreters sort of struggle, I should say, um, with imagining that James and Paul are in some kind of opposition. So you have these statements that Paul, that James makes that seem directly contrary to statements that Paul makes. For instance, Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from works. On the other hand, James says in uh, James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says that he has faith but has no works, will that faith save him? And the implication is no. Again, in Romans 4.2, Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something in which to boast, but not before God. And in James 2.21, seemingly directly contrary, uh, James writes, was not Abraham our father justified by works? And the implied answer is yes. Again, Paul, Galatians 2.16, seeing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. And James 2.24 says, you see that a man, or I should say, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. By, by the way, that's the only place in the New Testament or in the Bible where you get by faith alone, and it's interestingly preceded by not. Anyway, any chance we can kind of rile up, you know, Calvinists, don't want to miss, don't want to let that one go. So anyway, you've got this situation where it seems that Paul and James are in opposition in some way. And uh, on one possible scenario, uh, we could say that Paul is in some way an antinomian. Paul is a theologian of like free grace. Um, now, you know, he had this long history in Jewish oppressive legalism, and he discovers the, the liberation of faith in Christ, and he kind of goes wild and tells his churches, you don't have to worry about Torah anymore. You don't have to worry about the law and all of its heaviness. And because of Paul's ministry, there's been like these outbreaks of libertinism. You know, people just morally lax because of um, what Paul has done. And James is writing to correct those uh, liberative and antinomian that is against the law. Uh, influences. So Paul, Paul's enthusiasm and sort of spirit-orientedness um, has fouled things up in the Mediterranean, and James is writing to correct that. So are they actually in conflict? Well, in my opinion, they are not at all in conflict. But James, in his letter, and Paul in Romans and Galatians, have to be, understa have to be understood in their respective contexts. That is, 
James is addressing something that Paul is not, and Paul is addressing something that James is not. In Romans and Galatians, Paul is addressing uh, the conviction uh, on the part uh, of, of certain people in Rome and then certain people in Galatia, but he's addressing the pressure being brought to bear on those communities that Gentile Christians must become Jews, they must become Jewish Christians in order to be fully Christian. That to have no relationship to Judaism and its its mode of life, that's what he means by works. Um, sort of the mode of the, the deeds that a person does to demonstrate a Jewish identity. Um, but to have that mode of life seems to be uh, superior or is being said to be superior. That's what Paul's addressing. And he's addressing the, uh, the error that Gentile Christians must take on works of law, that is this Jewish lifestyle, in order to be saved. And so what Paul is saying is salvation is received without any kind of reference to whether or not a person is Jewish. Um, salvation is in Christ alone. And whatever your relationship to Torah, a Jewish, a person related to Torah uh, can be Christian, a person unrelated to Torah can be Christian. So Paul is not antinomian. He's not just uh, throwing off Jewish identity or the law or Torah to any extent. For Paul, faith is loyalty to Jesus, obedience to Jesus, whether or not um, whatever one's ethnicity. James, on the other hand, is addressing something different. He is addressing the assumption in his Jewish Christian communities, that the Jewish Christian communities for which he is responsible, um, James as sort of a, um, as, as a kind of a bishop character. He's a leader, he's the main leader in the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church is um, sort of overseeing other Jewish Christian communities uh, wherever they can be found. Paul is sent to the Gentiles. He, he's sent to non-Jewish people. And Paul was always trying to solidify and tighten the relationship between his non-Jewish churches and the Jerusalem church. Um, that was not always was not always easy to do. But James would be a letter carried around to Jewish Christian communities. And he is addressing the assumption in those communities um, that some people have that because of their special status as the historic people of God, uh, they get some kind of a free pass on some things. They, you know, a mere verbal profession of faith is sufficient. Um, you know, works of justice and works of care are sort of, you know, winked at. And it's not a big deal um, if you don't necessarily carry those out or have a mode of life that looks like obedience to Jesus. So the error that James is addressing is that so long as you have some kind of an internal attitude or you have you belong to the community in some way, um, and that if you have a life that's disconnected from actual obedience to the commands of God, that's okay. That's what James is addressing. And for James, faith that isn't matched by outward obedience and participation in works of justice is not faith at all. Faith in Christ is holistic, and it has sort of internal and external components. So James is not tightening things up, whereas Paul made them loose. I just am trying to point out uh, how it is that um, understanding that James and Paul are writing occasional literature helps us to see that they're not in conflict. Um, if they were addressing the same issues, 
they would have said largely the same things, not, um, not anything different at all. So understanding that these are occasional texts is, is useful in loads and loads of ways. Um, I just wanted to say something about um, authorship of New Testament letters. Authorship of New Testament letters is kind of a complicated thing. Um, and there's debate about whether there is possible um, pseudepigraphy or pseudonymity in New Testament letters that is false attribution of, um, of letters. So there's, there's the widespread assumption that Peter uh, may have had something to do with writing first Peter, but he, he would not have had some, anything to do with writing second Peter, or maybe they're both pseudonymous that is falsely attributed a false name. Um, and there's, there's also um, an assumption on the part of many Pauline scholars that uh, Paul obviously wrote the big uh, seven, the Hauptbriefe, the, the main letters, you know, Romans, first, second Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians, uh, first Thessalonians and Philemon, and that he would not have written, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, second Thessalonians, first Timothy, second Timothy and Titus. Yeah, that's six. So there's a division between the, the, the Hauptbriefe, the German term means the main letters and the Deuteropaulines, the secondary Paulines. Um, I'll just say for me, uh, I don't get too fired up about debates over authorship. I'm, I'm not the kind of person that, um, uh, I'm not the kind of person that has any sort of interest in apologetics or um, um, defending the faith or, I don't know, I just don't get into that. Um, and it's, it's, you know, concern about authorship uh, sort of falls to people that just feel like they, they need to defend the faith or have reasons why, I'm very comfortable with some unanswered questions about things. Um, yeah, I, this probably goes along with my sense that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in being Christian, but I don't, I'm not interested in making anybody else Christian or defending it. Cause it's just, I just don't come from that perspective. Um, yeah. So I don't get too fired up about matters concerning authorship. Um, but what, what I think is really helpful is Luke Timothy Johnson pointed this out in his book, uh, Constructing Paul. He wrote, he produced at the end of his career, um, he's just a wonderful New Testament scholar, brilliant guy. He produced at the end of his career uh, two volumes kind of summing up his life of New Testament scholar, uh, Pauline scholarship, and has just such creative, interesting perspectives on loads of stuff, but he had, he's got a big section on, um, authorship of new Testament letters. And he goes into just, just based on the evidence that we have from the new Testament, um, authorship was such a different matter than, than how modern people conceive of authorship. Um, it would have been something very like a committee. I mean, from, in most of his letters, Paul is with other people and he sends greetings. Uh, from the people that are with him on his ministry team. And his letters would have been the product of, um, of the team, of discussion about the contours of a certain problem or, or, or what they wanted to say. And, um, and then all of that would have been captured by somebody, by maybe different amanuenses, that is to say secretaries. There, there are people that took down uh, dictation. Paul did not quote unquote write his letters. At the end of 
Romans, you get this note um, that says, I, Tertius, wrote this letter. So Tertius is the one, uh, when Paul is in Corinth writing, you know, sending to the Romans this letter, there's a group of people in the room there, and they're talking about how they want to address the situation. And Paul is the apostle, but he's got people to talk to and, and, and to think with. And that's all represented in the letter um, or in the in the production of the letter. So that's why you get um, different writing styles in different uh, Pauline letters. It's not evidence that there's somebody else writing it. It's just an indication that you know maybe there's a the makeup of Paul's ministry team at that time is different. The person writing it has a different style, and it's 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 difficult to know to what extent there was freedom given to the person doing the you know the writing the actual dictation um it's difficult to know what to what extent there was some latitude given uh in different expressions and all that kind of thing so anyway authorship is just a far more complex and interesting uh process and that might be why there are are um differences in style and that sort of thing in the different letters and that's in addition to paul just addressing different situations um I mean, my emails look different. Uh, you know, the ones I write to Steve look different from the ones I write to my parents. Um, you know, I write differently to colleagues than I do to my children. So um, I think that that's another reason why we get variety in uh, New Testament letters. Anyway, I don't think authorship is that kind of a, is too much of something to get fired up about. And if there are some unanswered questions or some mysteries in my, to my mind, that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that there's a ton that rises or falls on that. Anyway, I, uh, it's been fun to talk about and rethink through new Testament letters. I am just going to say that there's, uh, I've already said it earlier. I'm going to continue doing this podcast despite the big changes the big and wonderful changes um, happening in my life. Um, I, I won't make any promises for next week, but um, yeah, all good things are, are happening and all good things are on their way. And so uh, from my perspective, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.